the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by Ron Geyer Roofing. The Bible describes events that will mark the last days, or end times. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Matthew 24.44 tells us, Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Bible teacher Ron Geyer leads us through Scripture that will help us to remain strong in the Lord. End Time Insights with Bible teacher Ron Geyer starts now. Good evening, family. I thank the Lord for allowing me to come and speak to you again. I love doing it. And I think I've got some great information for you. We love breaking down the Word of God. We love talking about the Word of God. That is my charge, my gift, is to teach the Bible. And hallelujah, you can't teach the Bible without teaching the Bible. I know a lot of people in churches today are calling themselves Bible teachers, but they're not teaching the Bible. Well, we're going to teach you the Bible. Amen. The topic today, we're still on... Uh, humility. And this one, you know, we've spoken to the last few weeks about individual humility, about uh, dealing with pride in your life and asking the Lord to remove it, letting his power reveal to you how dangerous pride can be in the life of a believer. Uh, You cannot have a relationship with God and be proud. Just can't do it. Can't do it. The the beginning aspect of Christianity, of being saved, of being a born-again Christian, is humbleness, humility, acknowledging there is a God and I'm not Him. And so we're going to continue on with that. But today, we've spoken to you about humility on a one-on-one individual relationship. I want to dig into humility in the church body, as a church body, as the people of God, as the ecclesia. It's right there somewhere. It's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, the Apostle Paul, you know, he writes letters, and the letters that he wrote, they were written to the church. He specifically, in Philippians 2 and Ephesians 4, reveals the hidden treasure that results from a church-wide, unified church walk in humility. And as a matter of truth, he speaks quite often that without true humility, there will never be oneness or unity in the church body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, and um going to use some of these verses I've spoken about before. No problem. I don't mind speaking about them again. Hallelujah. Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercy, fulfill ye my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. I like that. He defines unity in the church, oneness in the church, as being like-minded, having the same love. You know, love today in the church is counterfeit. Uh, That you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So like-minded, like-loved, in one accord, in one mind. In the expanded version, verse 2 reads like this, If so, then, make me very happy, fulfill, complete my joy, by having the same thoughts, being like-minded of one mind, sharing the same love, and having one mind, one heart, one soul, one purpose, one goal, one mind. 
I was actually ready to move on from humility. I was going to go into idolatry. Idolatry is everywhere. It presents a great danger to the church, and we do need to be talking about it. Once again, I'm on the radio because I'm going to talk about stuff that the pastors don't talk about in the pulpit. Some of them have building funds, and if they were to talk about the things that we talk about, sin, they might lose people, and there goes their building fund. Other reasons, too, they don't like to offend people by talking about judgment, whereas you must have judgment. Judgment is the birthplace of discernment. Duh, there's the reason there's no discernment in the body of Christ, because we don't know how to judge. I'm drifting. So let's just stick where I am. Verse 2, expanded version of the Bible, talking about having the mind of Christ, one mind. So I was ready to move away from humility into idolatry, but the Lord revealed, I'm not done yet there, Ron. I got more stuff I want you to say. And what he wants me to say is he wants me to bring humility as a, what's the word, as a prerequisite to the church becoming one. The goal, of course, is to become one. John 17 talks about it. Matter of fact, we'll get there in a week or two. But we need to become one, one body. And we need to go ahead and become unified. And so without humility, we will never be unified. So humility is the first step towards that. And so we'll come back to idolatry in a couple of weeks, like I said, when we get done with this. But the Lord did impress me that we weren't quite done because we are not one yet. He reminded me that, yes, we spoke on humility in the life of the individual believer. And yes, last week we shared how Christ himself demonstrated that humility that we are supposed to be imitating, following, copying. This week, God wants me to connect the two, Christ and the church. Too often we fail to catch the writings of Paul in the way that they were written. They weren't necessarily written to you and me as individual believers, although you can take that. You know, I was taught to read the Bible as it was a personal love letter from God to me. And it is. Yet, the way Paul wrote it, it was written to the body as a whole, not individuals. You know, like I said, Diane and I were taught, this is God's love letter to me. And yet, the problem with that is we forget that we belong to the body of Christ. It interferes with us becoming one, becoming a family, becoming unified. How good it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity, in harmony. It's like the oil, the anointing that ran down Aaron's beard. Hallelujah, even to his feet. There's a great anointing when we are in unity, our family. But that gets lost in the way that we teach the Bible. The New Testament letters, they're not written to individuals. It's a compilation of letters that's been written to the body of Christ as a whole. Now, you can contrast that with the Gospels. The words of Christ were written either to Jews as a whole, a Jewish nation, or as people, or as individuals to us, Gentiles. The word of Christ, they're always intimate. They're always cutting. They're always dissecting. They're separating the soul from the spirit. Jesus' words strips one naked, not for everyone to see, but for the reader, for the hearer to see him or herself as they truly are before God, utterly in need of God, in need of a Savior, that we are without God, empty of soul and devoid of life apart from God. When Jesus speaks, he walks right into our souls. When he spoke, he came right into their lives. He left nothing hidden. Nothing was missed. That's why I love the Gospels. It's just a spirit of intimacy when you're reading Jesus talking. There was no one else in the room. When one reads the Gospels, it is a most intimate time with the Lord God. It's just me and him. Not only is there no one else in the room, 
there literally isn't anything else in the room. Everything else fades and is dulled in the brightness of his presence, his truth. If you don't know the Lord, he will leave you wanting. If you do know the Lord, you will be fulfilled. Every encounter with the Lord will infect you in some manner for righteousness. While pride in all its forms and with all its connective sins of self and ego is the biggest hindrance to church unity, humility, which encompasses meekness and gentleness and uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Uh, the removal of self from one's life, it's the greatest hope for such harmony in the church of the living God. Matthew 5, 5, 5, blessed are the meek, or blessed are the humble, or blessed are the lowly in mind, for they shall inherit the earth. The expanded version goes like this. They are blessed who are humble. That's pretty simple. They are blessed who are humble, meek, gentle, for the whole earth will be theirs. Humility in God's people. It's a major theme that has gotten lost in the church today. Not only doesn't it get taught to the church about their Christian responsibility to be a humble servant to God for man, just like Jesus was, but it rarely gets pointed out when we are talking about our Lord and Savior Jesus. You don't hear that many teachings on the humility of Christ. Philippians 2, 5 and 8, again, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Basically, guys, if the head be humble, then yes, most definitely the body needs to be humble as well. And Jesus is the head of the church. And frankly, from where I sit, we've missed it there as well. John MacArthur hits the nail on the head when he makes these comments. In whatever way various groups of people expected the Messiah to come, the Jews, they did not anticipate his coming humbly and meekly. Yet those were the very attitudes that Jesus, the one whom John the Baptist has announced as the Messiah, those were the very attitudes that Jesus himself was both teaching and practicing. The idea of a meek Messiah leading meek people was far from any of their expectations, any of their concepts of what the messianic kingdom was going to look like. The Jews understood military power and they understood miracle power. They even understood the power of compromise, as unpopular as that was. But they did not understand the power of meekness. Neither do we. The people as a whole eventually rejected Jesus because he did not fulfill their messianic expectations. More MacArthur, this strange preacher could hardly be the deliverer that they were looking for. Great causes are fought by the proud, not the humble. So good. You cannot win victories while mourning, and you certainly could never conquer Rome with meekness. In spite of all the miracles of his ministry, the people never really believed in him as the Messiah because he failed to act in a military or a miracle power of demonstration of strength against Rome. Jesus' teaching seemed new. It seemed unacceptable to most of his hearers simply because the Old Testament so greatly neglected and misinterpreted what they were learning. They did not recognize the humble and self-serving Jesus as the Messiah because they did not recognize God's predicted suffering servant as the Messiah. That was not the kind of Messiah that they wanted. Because of our, this is me, because of our lack of humility today, guys. No, wait, let's change that. 
I don't like to use that word humility by itself. You know, if there was no God, there would be no such thing as humility. But there is a God. Therefore, there has to be humility, that there is something greater than man. There is someone more powerful, more wise, more loving, more giving, more demanding than man. And that should keep us in a spirit of humility. And if we know that, God, we will continue to be humble. But I don't want to just talk about humility alone. I want to make sure, I want to make it seem like humility, it's not its own word in my, in my thinking, and it doesn't have its own significance. Humility is inbred in the child of God. One can never get saved without humility. If there is a God, then there must be humility. And that is where a lot of man's problems stem from. It's idolatry. It's pride. Guys, you don't have to be humble before me. I recognize there are greater men than I am. Actually, when the Bible talks about humility, it doesn't talk about thinking of yourself less than others. It just talks about thinking of yourself less important than others. You know, it's not a matter of your value. You know, we're all equal in value, but we've got gifts for our assignments. And it's that that should keep us mindful of our humility. Micah 6, 8. He hath shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. I don't have to walk humbly with you, although I should as a child, as a servant of God. I should prefer you before me. But you had best walk humbly before the true, only, living God. And it says it right there to the Jew, Micah 6, 8. God has shown you guys, oh man, he's shown you what's good. Well, what's good, Lord? What's good? It's what the Lord requires of you. You know, the Lord has requirements upon us. He makes demands upon us, and we need to start recognizing them and obeying them. But you are required to walk humbly with God. Truth be told, there is no other way to walk with God than to walk humbly. If you are not walking humbly with God, then you're not walking with God. If you are walking proudfully, you are not walking with God. You're walking with somebody else. You cannot walk any other way with God than the way he dictates, and that is humbly. For me, I don't separate humility from God. I walk humbly with God. If I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to meet with God, I am humble before him. I recognize it is he who has woken me up this morning. It is he who has chosen for me to live another day to serve and to love. It is he. I don't get glory for that. I think I spoke about this last week about Spurgeon's comment. He goes, how dare you be humble? What have you got that wasn't given to you? Right? We didn't do anything. Any gifts I have are from God. I was studying this morning. I woke up and I started reading John 17, 1 and 2, talking about Jesus and the glory. He says, God, I want the glory that you've got. I want you to give it to me, please. Why? So that I can glorify you. You know, glory, true glory comes from God. I'm drifting. But we tend to keep the glory. We want the glory, which is counterfeit. We can't rob God of the glory he gives us to bring glory to him. That was the principle that Jesus tried to teach us. But anyway, back to humility. You either walk humbly with God or you can't walk with him at all. That's all. We try to walk with him with proud hearts and idolatrous spirits. And No, you're not walking with God. I'm sorry. You're walking with somebody else. I don't mean that you'll be denied permission to walk with God if you're not walking humbly with God. I just mean it is a spiritual impossibility for one to walk in pride and walk with God. It can't be done. It's really simple. If you have a proud life, then you are not walking with God. If you have a selfish life, then you are not walking with God. If you have an inconsiderate, arrogant life, then you are not walking with God. 
we need to quit accepting less than what God requires from us. He has shown thee, O man, what the Lord doth require of thee. Humility is the consequences of there being a God. And he requires you, he demands that you walk with him. But he sets the rules. He creates the boundaries by which he will walk with you. You must walk in humility as a church body. We must walk with humility as a church body. We must walk in harmony as a church body. There are requirements of being a child of God. There is a job description in serving others. As we focus on unity, that's where we're heading, unity through humility, it becomes paramount that we must die to self. When we think about Christ-likeness, humble service must be at the top of those thoughts of that list. Unfortunately, even today, just like the Jews of Christ's day, we are misunderstanding our role. Philippians, here we go. Back to Philippians 2, 7 and 8. But he made himself, Jesus, no reputation, and he became a servant. He was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is such an important aspect of Scripture. I know we spoke previously about it, but we must be like Christ. If we are to honor God, as we should, if we are to become one as his body, as we should, here Christ humbles himself and he gives us the example. He could serve us properly through his humility. Well, then we can serve others properly by being humble also. He became our servant willingly. He accomplished this by obeying God. Check out this truth. In order for Jesus to serve God acceptably, he had to do four things, right? He had to empty himself. He had to become a servant. He had to humble himself and he had to obey God. Now, we're capable of all that through the power of the Holy Spirit, folks. We can become a servant. We can empty ourselves as we submit to God, right? He must increase. I must decrease. John knew it back then. He had to humble himself. We should do that. Pride gets in the way. Well, the starting point for humbling themselves is acknowledging that you have an issue with pride, that you think of yourself more highly than you ought to. And then finally, he had to obey God. You know, saints, if we will just obey God. And, you know, Jesus, right? Jesus, how did he learn obedience? Wait, did you say Jesus had to learn obedience? Yes, I did. Jesus had to learn obedience, and you have to learn obedience. Okay, Well, how did Jesus learn obedience? I'm so glad you asked. Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. (laughs) Well, guess how you're going to have to learn obedience? Through the things that you suffer. As you learn to deny yourself things that are only killing you. You know, Jesus never asked you to give up anything that isn't destroying you. As you learn to lay down the desires of the flesh, as you learn to put down your ego, as you learn how to serve others because you want the best for them, you will become perfected just like Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus was and is and always will be God. There never was a time when Jesus wasn't God. Yet, so basically without dismissing his authority or renouncing his authority, Jesus used that authority. He put it to work for him to serve us. And this is so important. We talk about this often in our marriage classes. I am the head of my home. The husband is the head of the home. You guys know that, right? I am the head of the home. It's a spiritual position, but it can often manifest in the in the carnal realm, in the five-cent realm. I am the head. I have authority within the marriage 
Old Testament wives even acknowledge this by referring to their husbands as Lord. Sarah referred to Abraham as Lord. Uh, Let's see. Truth be told, in marriage, the goal is oneness, just like it is in the body of Christ. The perfect plan of God in marriage is oneness, with the wife submitting to the man and the man submitting to the Lord. And in a general sense, both husbands and wives submitting to each other. I have the authority. But if I ever have to use my authority to get my way to rule, then I have missed it. However, when I use my authority to serve, it's a win-win. Here's a key point. I don't do away with my authority when I serve Diane. You got that? I keep my authority. It's not that I'm denying my authority. It's that I'm using it in a manner to serve Diane. I am the stronger man physically stronger man. I'm the only man in my marriage. I am the stronger one physically, right? Now, you could say, well, that gives me dominance, the fact that I can have the threat of force to get my way. No, that gives me the ability to reach stuff on the top shelf, to change the flat tire on the car that maybe she can't do, to vacuum when she's tired. I use my physical strength to serve my wife. I think that's a great picture. When I use my authority to serve rather than to rule, then we win. Jesus did the same thing. He never divested himself of his authority. He used it. He kept it. Here's the key. He never was a tyrant with mankind, and he could have been, right? But instead, he used that power to lay down his life. He used that strength to commit to dying on the cross for our sin, went to hell, and rose again. He had the power and the authority, but he used it in a manner that served mankind rather than a man that ruled mankind. Tyranny, tyranny. Leadership without humility is tyranny. Leadership without humility is tyranny. Husbands that slap their wives around, they are leading all right, but they're using it in a tyrannical manner. That's a shame on them because they're violating, it's a counterfeit, it's Satan's way of counterfeiting the truth, the word of God. Tyrannical leadership in a marriage is done by those void of humility. There's no humility there. There will never be oneness there. You cannot have oneness without humility. And the goal in marriage, for this reason, shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined unto his wife, and the two shall become one. Well, it's the same goal in the body of Christ, to all become one, to we, uh, the unity of the spirit, right? The unity of the faith. We're supposed to be coming one with each other, but when we are not walking humble with our God, it is impossible for us to be walking humbly with each other. And just like when we are not walking humbly with God, we cannot become one with God. Well, when we are not walking humbly with each other, we cannot become one with each other either. Truth be told, in marriage, the goal is oneness. In Jesus' church, the goal is the same oneness. In the relationship between God and his church, the goal is that same oneness, but it takes humility on the part of all involved to achieve this Oneness. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. As Christians, you are called to walk humbly with God, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. That means putting up with one another in love. Why? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. John seventeen eleven. And now I am no more in the world, says Jesus. But these are in the world, the disciples, and I come to thee, Holy Father. Keep through your own name those whom you have given me. Why? That they may be one just as we are. So Jesus prayed for the church. He prayed for the disciples. And further on, he's going to say that he's praying for us also, those who come after them, who are one by them. But he wants us to become one just as God and he are. 
but it gets better. John 17, 21. That they all may be one, they all, the disciples and the disciples who come after, that we all may be one as thou, Father, art in me. So Jesus is praying that we become one in the same way that God and Jesus is one, and I in thee, but that they also may be one in us. Isn't that great? Not only are we to become one with one another, but we are to become one in unity with Jesus and God also. And why is that? Let me finish the scripture then. That they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Your oneness is a witness. That's the goal. Oneness is the goal, witnessing to the lost, the supernatural power of the Lord, becoming one in unity. That shows people that you need the power of God to live in true love and true harmony. And that's what a husband and wife becoming one does. It's the most powerful witness there is on the earth, man and woman becoming one, painting a picture of what oneness with a relationship with God is supposed to look like. Well, praise the Lord. I'm out of time. We'll be back next week. God bless you. God keep you. Come to know him better and better in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us for End Time Insights with Ron Geyer. Listen again next Sunday night at 8 on 100.7 The Word, where faith comes by hearing. You can also listen to the podcast of this program by going to kkht.com. If you would like to contact Ron, email him at gospelguy at comcast.net. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.